0: You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. My my name is Houston. I'm the church planning resident here. um, And we're uh, continuing Philippians today. Before we jump in, uh, we've been doing that Q&A. We're going to keep doing it this morning. I um, hope that it is as enjoyable for you guys as it is for us, um, and hopefully it's as good for you guys as it has been for us. So if you have any questions today, uh, shoot them to John Centenio. John, I made him raise his hand for a service, and so thank you, John. Uh, I Yeah, shoot him to John, and he'll send him to me. Um, I feel like just addressed the elephant in the room. I did shave, yes. Uh that was one of the questions for a service, and so I feel like I could just answer it now. Yes. Uh, long story short is I shaved it closer than I wanted, and you have to commit once you start down that path. Uh, and so here I am. But the official story is, you know, sometimes you just need to change, right? Okay. <laughs> well, we're continuing in the book of Philippians today. In Philippians chapter 3, and you know what, when I, when I read this passage... Our passage today, it reminds me of a movie, and it's a very important movie to me. Um, It's a movie all about one man trying to, in my estimation, trying to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, It's the movie Nacho Libre. Okay, great. Great response. Um, Okay, so, you know, some of you, you're thinking about that movie, and you don't remember it being about someone learning how to follow Jesus, but when I see it, that's what I see. Because if you think about it, over the course of the movie, a big theme is that everyone is trying to tell Ignacio what it means to be a Christian, or, or really what it means to to be in his position. You know, there's there's all kinds of lines. He is struggling because you know he's got the bad jobs. He's got the jobs that that he doesn't like, uh, as he says, uh, kitchen duty, dead guy duty, and he hey, he wants better duties, right? Uh, but the problem is that the, the other the other brothers at the orphanage, they think that he, as the line goes, doesn't know a ton about the Gospels, but he does. And so, in his journey of faith, as I see it, in his journey of faith, he has to understand and learn what it means to follow Jesus and, and what really does it mean to be a Christian. You see, there's, he, he wants to wrestle, and he feels that that drive to wrestle, right, to be a luchador. And, and he wants to get into the ring, but Incarnacion tells him that you should not wrestle; that it's not loving, right? So then, at one point in the movie, there's the two boy, a couple of boys are wrestling and they're fighting. And he breaks them up and he says, "No, of course it says in the Bible not to wrestle your neighbor," which it doesn't. It doesn't say that in the Bible. But the whole thing is isn't it, a journey. What does it mean to be a brother at an orphanage? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Does it mean you can't wrestle? Does it mean that you have to take these certain vows or do these certain things? And what I think we see in this movie is actually a picture of the people around Ignacio telling him, this is what it means. This is what you can do. This is what you should do. And they drew lines and they said, this is what it means to be good. And so that's what we're going to talk about today in the book of Philippians. You know, last week, James, James talked to us about the image of uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, their example, and how they were good examples of what it means to be Christians. And he talked about their love and their joy and their obedience and their faithfulness and bravery and how those were all great examples to the Philippian church and to us of what it means to be a Christian. What James showed us is real examples of what it means to live out the Christian faith. In our passage today, Paul wants wants us to see another part of what it means to live out the Christian faith. You know, we've, we've called this series Hope Amid Hardship. And there's a good reason for that. Hope is a huge theme in the book. And you know, Paul, if ever there was someone in hardship, it's him. Just in this book, we saw examples of Paul in prison, people out to get him, all kinds of things. And still in the midst of all of it, he has hope. He's hopeful. And not just hopeful, but joyful. And in fact, we can trace this theme of joy throughout the book of Philippians, just the same as you can hope. And even here in our passage today, grab your Bibles with me, turn to Philippians 3.1. Even in our passage today, Paul starts off by telling the Philippian Christians to rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Did you catch that end, the last part? It is safe for you. Literally what Paul is saying, it is a firm thing for you. It's firm in the sense that the ground is firm for us to stand on. Paul is saying here that to rejoice in the Lord is so important that it's like the ground we walk on as Christians. And, but why is that? Well, I think the question to ask is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or maybe, what does it mean to be a good Christian? You know, just like Ignacio was asking himself in Nacho Libre, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a Christian? You know, I think if we went out on the streets of Madison... Say we went to the farmer's market, and we started asking people, what does it mean to be a Christian? I think we would probably get as many answers as people we asked. But I'm also sure we would see some common threads. You know, probably we would hear a lot of, oh, to be Christian means that, you know, you think you're better than everybody else, or, or that you don't do anything bad. I think if you ask my coworkers what it means to be Christian, they would say, it means you have to go to church on Sunday and you definitely can't have any fun. But I also know some of my friends think that to be a Christian means that you either serve at homeless shelters or you protest funerals with the Westboro Baptists. But Paul doesn't think that any of that's it. No, none of those things make up the core of of what it means to be a Christian. Those things that I described are are good and bad things that Christians do, but that is not what it means to be Christian. And that is the important thing that we're going to see today. So what Paul is going to present to us is he's going to present to us two options, two paths to approach Christianity and really to approach life. The first path is to try to make it on our own and try to be good enough. And the second path is to accept Jesus' gift of grace. Basically what Paul is saying is you've got two options. Either you can try to be good enough, or you can accept that Jesus was good enough and put your faith in him. And so Paul is going to flesh out both of these options for us today. He's going to show us why that second one is so much better than the first. So let's pray. Lord, we just pray, and yeah, we pray along with the song that we sang this morning, Not Our Will, but Your Will be done. We pray that You would guide us in this time, that as we sit under Your Word, that You would um, open our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts to Your Word. Let it dwell in us richly and transform us, Lord, by the power of Your Spirit. And I pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be glorifying to you, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first thing we want to see this morning is a warning. This is the what not to do, okay? So uh, flip back to verse 2 with me. Philippians 3 2. It says this Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he's warning the Philippians to look out for these people. Dogs, mutilators, evil workers. It's weird. It's weird language. And really to understand this, we need a little bit of context. Where are you coming from, Paul? What in the world does this mean? You see, in the early church, right at the beginning, All of the followers of Jesus were also Jewish. They believed in the scriptures. They kept the Torah. They would have been what we consider Jewish both ethnically and religiously. Religiously? You know what I'm saying. Uh, And they they did the full deal. This was the, the grew up going to the temple or synagogues. They followed the Torah. They ate kosher. They went the whole nine yards. And so when Jesus came along and they start following him, they don't stop doing those other things. And it makes sense why, because really even Jesus was Jewish, right? So it makes sense that they would keep doing these things they were doing. But the problem arose when people who were not Jewish by birth or religion started following Jesus. So then Christians, they started to ask each other that same question that I asked earlier. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a good Christian? And in the book of Acts, we see this question get worked out by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 15, in particular, we see the council of Christian leaders in Jerusalem. These these are the heads of the whole church. And they're asking this exact question. And it says that the Spirit leads them to this answer. That it's not necessary for new believers to keep the whole Old Testament law. And one thing, there were a few things they should not do still, but the gist of it was they didn't need to keep the whole Old Testament law. And one thing in particular is that they didn't have to get circumcised. And this is significant because circumcision was like the sign that you were coming under the covenant of Moses, covenant of Abraham, but uh, the law of Moses. In other words, the Old Testament law. And so circumcision was like the gateway into righteousness by the law. And so when we come here to Philippians, Paul is warning against those who mutilate the flesh. And what he's referring to is these Jewish Christians who are telling new believers that they have to be circumcised and hold the whole Old Testament law in order to be saved by Jesus. And I think the first thing that you might see in this, the first thing that stood out to me, Was the severity of the language that Paul is using? This is not a casual, hey, don't listen to those guys. This is really serious. He's calling them evil workers, mutilators of the flesh. It's because Paul thinks that these guys are sowing disunity and destruction in the church. And that's a big deal. See, he thinks that they're getting it wrong. And not just wrong, but wrong in a dangerous way. And so we'll see why he says that in the next verse. In verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul shows here this dichotomy that I was talking about earlier. These two options. He says, either you put your confidence in the flesh, or you worship in spirit. And man, I don't know about you, but when I first read this, that meant nothing to me. I mean, what in the world does it mean to have confidence in the flesh? What does it really mean to worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus? Well, thankfully, Paul goes on to unpack both of these things for us. First, he's going to talk about what confidence in the flesh is. So let's look at verses 4 through 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Do You see a thread here. Paul says that he has more reason to be confident in the flesh than anyone else. And I mean, when you look at this list, I can start to get there. You see his pedigree. He was born into a religious family. He was born in the right tribe, of the right people group. He did everything right. He was a Pharisee. It means he was one of the religious elites at the time. I mean, just in case you thought maybe he's just a Pharisee for show, punched his car and went home. No, 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 no. He had so much zeal that he persecuted the church because he thought that was the right thing to do. And, and this last part right here, this is the most important part. He says, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless. Paul's saying that according to the Old Testament law, he was blameless. He did everything right. He was one of those people who did everything he was supposed to. Every week, he was in synagogue or the temple. Every festival, he was there. Every feast, he was there. He offered every sacrifice. He sang every song. He did all the things he was supposed to do. He didn't do the things he wasn't supposed to do. He was diligent with every single part of his life. And in all of it, he he says that he looks back on his life he says that under the law, he was blameless. The idea is that Paul was as close to perfect as you could get. That is what Paul meant by confidence in the flesh. By, By confidence in the flesh, he's saying confidence in being good enough. It's like this idea that there's a threshold out there. If you do enough of the good things and don't do too many of the bad things, you cross that threshold and you're good. You're all set. And Paul considered himself blameless in the law. And boy, if that isn't crossing the threshold, I don't know what is. And I think it's easy for us to see how Christians can do this today, isn't it? I mean, in some ways, Paul's list sounds similar to the list of uh, what it means to be a Christian, if we ask people on the street, right? You know some people call this idea legalism, and it's this idea that there is a certain list of things that we can do and a certain list of things that we shouldn't do, that if we do them all, we're good enough and we'll make it in. But I like the word religiosity instead. And boy, Christians are great at religiosity, aren't we? I mean, why also do the people around us think that what it means to be a Christian is like, we can't have fun, and then we're judgmental and hypocritical. It's because we're good at religiosity. But I think really the truth is that if we look at the world around us, we see that same religiosity just from a different perspective. I mean, secular people have a list of things that make them good and bad just the same as religious people do. And some of these values we would affirm as Christians. Like a big idea in secular ethics right now is that we shouldn't treat people unfairly based on their culture or ethnicity. That's great. We love that. As Christians, we affirm that, right? We affirm that. There's also ideas that we don't affirm. Like, the idea that self expression or personal fulfillment is the highest good. Or maybe this idea that your sexuality is your identity. And I think the idea, the thing is that if we, say, we go back out on the streets of Madison, we go to the farmer's market, if we stop people and start asking them, hey, are you a good person? Almost every single person would say, yeah, I'm a good person. I do the good things. I don't do the bad things. That's because every person, whether they admit it or not, has a list, has a set of criteria. The things that are good, that if they do them, they're good. And the things that are bad, that if you don't do them, you're good. And if you do them, you're bad. This is that same confidence in the flesh that Paul's talking about. This, this is the same religiosity. Just different lines. And sure, Paul's list of what makes someone good from a first century Jewish perspective is is very different from what makes someone good from a, a Madison, Wisconsin secular perspective, right? But the heart behind it is the same. It's the same heart that leads to these two perspectives. In both scenarios, people think that they can determine the list of what is good and bad more specifically, what makes you good or bad? But in all of these lists, there's a very fundamental problem. It's that the lists are wrong. More specifically, that the lists are very conveniently wrong. What I mean is this. Every person defines what it means to be a good or bad person. And almost always, these definitions line up with themselves, with the things that they do or don't do. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I I know for me, in my own life, the list of what I think makes someone a good person looks a lot like somebody I know. And the list of what makes someone a bad person looks a lot like the things that annoy me in other people. Right? Right? I mean, how easy is it for us to make a list of all the things that make someone good or bad and to draw those lines right around us in a way that favors us and more importantly allows us to condemn those around us. This is why Paul is so adamantly against confidence in the flesh. This is why Paul hates religiosity. Paul hates it because really, it's not even a means to coming closer to God, right? It's not really about being good. Religiosity is an expression of pride. Religiosity is each of us saying, I know what's good. I know what's right. I know what's enough. It's the grounds upon which we can look in the mirror and say, you are good enough. And in the same breath, we look outside, see a person on the street and say, You're not. See, religiosity does not love others. It judges others. Religiosity doesn't even love God. It just loves self. See, that's that's the sinister truth about religiosity. Is that it's not about us trying to be good enough for God. It's us saying, take a seat, God. I've got this one. Religiosity is our way of saying, God, I don't need you. I am good enough on my own. And that is why religiosity is dangerous. And really, the truth is it doesn't matter where you draw the lines. It doesn't matter if you have the most generous definition of good. It doesn't matter if you're trying to stick as close to biblical truths as possible. Religiosity is dangerous because it's how humans take the truth out of God's hands, we clutch it close to our chest and we use it to make ourselves feel better and superior than others. We use it to judge and draw lines. And it's us missing the point altogether. So we see that trying to make it our own is garbage. It doesn't work. We'll never live up to God's standards. And and if we're honest with ourselves we won't live up to our standards either. And so what is our other option? If no one can really be religious enough or good enough, what in the world else can we do? Well, Paul's going to tell us, thankfully. Let's read verses 7 through 8. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here is our alternative the alternative to religiosity as garbage is to know Jesus. Paul says that our only chance at this is to give up whatever lists we had, whatever criteria we had for goodness, to throw away the religiosity. Instead, we cling to Jesus. This is what Paul is saying in these first two verses. Paul is saying that when he came to faith in Jesus, he looked back at his life at all of his striving for goodness, all of his religiosity, and he said to himself, that was a loss. He's saying that all that confidence in the flesh that he had before was not good. It was not getting him closer to God. In fact, it was moving him farther away. Paul saw that his attempts at personal righteousness was actually a barrier from him coming to Jesus. Because why in the world would he need Jesus when he was righteous enough by himself? And because of that, he counted it as a loss. And in fact... He doesn't just say loss, does he? If you look here in verse 8, the very last line, second last line, it says, For his sake I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish is a polite translation of this word. Paul is saying that he thinks of it like excrement. Paul is saying that it wasn't good, it was foul. He says that he looks back at his life before Jesus and all the striving that he did to be religious, to be good enough, all of his religiosity, he says it all amounted to sewage. And he can say that because now he has seen a different way. He's seen a better way. See what he says in the rest of our passage starting in the second half of verse 8. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says all of that other stuff, all of that stuff is garbage compared to gaining Jesus. All that striving that he did, all that striving that we do to be good enough on our own, to follow whatever list of good and bad we have, it doesn't even come close To Jesus' righteousness that is ours in Him. And man, all the self satisfaction that comes from considering ourselves good and other people not, it does not even compare to the joy of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. To what Paul is talking about here is our benefits of. Our union with Christ. Right now in Thrive, we're talking about this. We're talking about union with Christ. What it means to be united with Christ and really how this plays out in our Christian life. So you should find somebody that either is in or was in Thrive and ask them about it at some point. Uh, This is a test they didn't know was coming, but there it is. Uh, You know, we've spent about a month on it so far. It's a powerful idea. It's an important and central idea to the Christian faith. And it's this, it's the idea that when we put our faith in Jesus, it's not just something that happens in our head. It's not just, yeah, I trust Jesus, and then I'll go on with my life. Faith in Jesus is putting our whole trust in him. It's like entrusting Jesus with our whole lives, with our souls. And in return, the Bible says that Jesus gives himself to us. It's a lot like marriage. It's the idea that two people come together, and they trust, and they give themselves to each other, and there's, they're bound together in covenant. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul compares the relationship between Christ and the church to marriage. This is the union with Christ imagery. And like marriage, Jesus has committed himself to us. He has made a covenant with us, and he asks for our faith in him. And this picture of uniting with Christ is what Paul is getting at when he says that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is union imagery, gaining, being found in. Paul gave up all of his religiosity to follow Jesus because ultimately he knew that he was getting way more than he could have ever hoped for in Jesus. I mean, think about it this way. Say the goal of religiosity is to be considered good. When we're united with Jesus, we receive his righteousness. That's what it says here in verse 9. But That which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's like we're united with him, so we receive his righteousness. So if the goal is to be good, this is the way to do it. Or what if the goal of religiosity is to be closer to God? Well, man, how much closer can you get than being united with him? And if the goal of religiosity is like resurrection from the dead, hope in the next life, what better hope is there than to be united with the one who said himself, I am the resurrection and the life? Friends, this is the picture. That Paul is painting for us here. He says, We've got two options in front of all of us. We can pursue religiosity. We can try as hard as we can to define the lines of good and bad and to stick to them. We can continue to judge ourselves and the people around us according to our boundaries. We can spend all of our time striving to be righteous and good enough and hope that at the end, when we stand before Jesus, we'll say, I didn't need you, I had it myself. Or, we can accept the hand that has been offered to us from Jesus. We can accept being united with him and gaining his righteousness. And friends, this second one, that is the path to joy. That is the path to life. Paul knows it. God knows it, and I think ultimately inside we know it too. We have to humble ourselves to accept the grace of God, to recognize that all of that striving that I did to be good enough is garbage. It's not good. I define the lines of what is good and bad, and I, I didn't even stick within them. And at the end, what do I have to show for myself? We have to accept that we need Jesus, that we need our Savior, and humble ourselves and come to him. And so as we move towards a time of application and response, I want to encourage all of us to consider the ways that we put our confidence in the flesh. And I think the thing to remember is that so often when we're thinking about these things that we're putting our confidence in, they're good things. They've gone awry. they've taken the wrong place in our life. So like maybe maybe your confidence is in your stability. Maybe you have a good education, a good job, a good family, a good house, you're stable. your life is stable. And in some way, you think this makes you good. Well, I think the sinister thing the thing that we have to remember, the dark truth of that is that if that's what makes you good, man, that's the lines upon which you're going to judge people around you, right? What about when someone comes to the church and they don't have the same kind of stability you do? What if someone doesn't have the job that you have or the home that you have? Does that mean that they're not good? Does that mean that they're not okay? Or, Or maybe... You serve at the church all the time, four or five times a week. Any need, you're there. You're meeting the need. And you think that serving is going to somehow get you closer, get you more good. Well, man, what are you going to do when you look at someone else and they're not serving as much as you? You've drawn that line. You've drawn the line of what's good and you put them on the other side of it. Maybe you're like me, and you've dedicated your life to the ministry of the Word. You read your Bible regularly. You love to study. You love all this. And then, what are you going to do when another believer doesn't? They don't read the Bible as much as you. They don't study as much. See, in all of these things, these are examples of good things gone bad. These are good things in our lives. But as soon as they become the lines upon which we judge whether people are good or not, the lines upon which we say this is enough to achieve righteousness, they become rotten. This is the rubbish that Paul was talking about. The more that we look at our own lives, our own accomplishments, our own spirituality, or whatever it is, and we start to think that we're achieving these things on our own, or we start to think that this makes us good, we start to think that we're better than someone else. This is forgetting the truth upon which we stand as Christians. You remember when I said at the beginning? When I said that rejoicing in the Lord is the ground upon which we walk on as believers. It's because there is never a point in the Christian life which we are not rejoicing in the Lord. And yeah, we we rejoice that He is good, which He is. And we rejoice that He's so loving, and He is. But man, always, always, we rejoice in the Lord because we know that without Him, all that we have to show for ourselves is rubbish. We know that without Jesus' righteousness, we are not good enough. We know that without our union with Christ, we do not have any hope. We will not be able to stand in front of God one day and say that we were good enough. And without our union with Christ, we don't have hope in the resurrection in the last days. Friends, we rejoice in the Lord as Christians because God has presented to us the only alternative to religiosity and that is himself. And the question we have to ask today is, do we receive that? Do you receive that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time reading your word and studying your word. And we just pray that you would continue to work transformation in our hearts and minds, Lord. pray that as we go away from here that we could that we could remember what ground we stand on, that we continue to rejoice in you, Lord, because without you, we've got nothing. Because as much as we try to be good or good enough, it doesn't compare. As much as we try to make our own list of what is good and evil, Lord, they don't compare to yours. As much as we try to be our own God and Savior, we're just not. And so I thank you, Lord, that you are, that you loved us, that you came to us, that you died on the cross for our sins and rose again. I pray, Lord, that we could be a people who are transformed by the gospel, people who live so full of joy because we know the truth that you have loved us and saved us. And it's not our righteousness that counts, but yours. We thank you, Lord, for everything you give us. And so in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Uh, Let's do a couple of questions real quick. Um, There's one that's just oof. Uh, What are some of the best ways to combat religiosity in ourselves and to encourage brothers and sisters who may be caught in patterns of religiosity? I, I feel like the opposite of religiosity is humility. It's like just recognizing that, no, I'm not good enough. I think a great thing that we do every Sunday is the rhythm of confession and assurance. And it's like if you, I think about this for myself, if I ever come to a time of confession and I don't have something to confess, I've missed something, right? It's not because I had a good week. It's like I missed something. So there's just this recognition that I will not live up. And I think that should humble us. But then I think also when I take that humility and I look at what Jesus has done for me, like the price that he paid and I'm united with him, it should then like bring me back up, right? That rhythm of confession and assurance. So I feel like the way to combat religiosity is that rhythm of confession assurance. God, I am no good. I messed up. And then, wow, like, you love me so much, and you've done so much for me. And I think, you know, it should start to rebuild us in a way that we recognize that it's not, it's not us, right? I think that's what it is. It's just self-focus. It's, it's like self-obsession, um, right? I'm going to be good enough. It's like, no, you're not. He was good enough. But that should move you to be more bold because the God of the universe is who you're united with. Does that make sense? Uh, so there's two questions here. If no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And then, what, was it possible for Jews to achieve righteousness and salvation through the law and sacrifice prior to Christ? If no, are Old Testament persons like Moses and David condemned? If salvation was possible prior to Christ, is it possible for Jews to achieve the same today? Or did God change the rules after Christ? I cannot even hope to answer that right now. That's a huge, huge question. Um, half of the book of Romans is about this exact question, and then the other half is about unpacking this exact question. So, like, this is huge. Uh, I think the best thing I could say is that read the book of Romans, and uh, I'll try to get back to you on it. But there, there one last question. Um how can we achieve a balance of trying not to be religious and not being drawn into temptation? For example, Ignacio's struggle to keep his vows to the monks while being physically and emotionally drawn to the beautiful Encarnacion. Great question. Um, and I think like the really important thing to remember is in the Christian life, the order of things is really important. So it's this idea that if being good... And resisting temptation is a means by which we're going to try to achieve salvation or goodness or holiness or whatever, then it's never going to get us there. We're in a bad way. But if we accept the grace of Jesus and we're united with him, well, then that should spur us on to want to serve him and love him and try to be his definition of good. And so I think it's like, um, it's like being married. You know, so like Kinsey and I, we divide the labor, I cook, she does dishes. So like if one night I do dishes too, I'm not trying to meet some threshold of loving acts in order to have a good marriage or be good enough or it's like, it's not like once I've done the dishes enough times, like I'm set, I you know, I have loved Kinsey, we're good. It's like, no, because I love Kinsey, I want to do the dishes to serve her, you know? And I think it's the same thing as Christians, it's like, we love Jesus, we're united with him. And so that should lead us to pursue good things and to resist temptation. So I think the idea in the Christian life is that it it may be the same actions, but the important thing is why are you doing them and what's the heart behind them? Like what's moved you to do that?